Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, episode 14. edition of the Axiom Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about hiring A players. And this comes from a lot of the content we're going to talk about today. It comes out of a talk I gave back in 2013 to a group of business owners and attorneys and people in the HR industry. And we we're talking about this whole idea of A, B, and C players. And I had been using a book for a while uh, with clients, a book called Top Grading. And I'll put a link in the show notes to it. You can find the show notes at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 014. But the premise behind top grading is what I would tell clients is that it's the basic premises. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to get A players on board. And I think a lot of the companies that have uh, you know complaints about not being able to find A players – are typically the ones who don't invest a ton of time in getting them. And there's, I don't want to call it a haphazard approach to hiring and getting people into the company, but it's definitely not a systematic approach. And so today when we're going to talk about top grading, we're talking about how, how to bring these employees on board, what we're really talking about is systematizing your hiring process and not waiting until the last minute when you absolutely have to have somebody to go out and start looking. When you're talking about growing companies, and most of the work that I do in strategic planning environments within client companies is all about growth. So these are companies that come to us and they say, we're a $5 million company and we want to be a $10 million company, or we're a $10 million company and we want to be a $20 million company. And we help them put together a strategy to grow into that, whatever size that is that they ultimately want to be. Building the infrastructure of, of the people who are there is a huge part of that. It won't happen unless you get the right people. And in most cases, it won't happen unless you get more people. I mean you're just going to have to hire more people. The same amount of people can't do double the amount of work in production. So when we talk to companies about strategic planning and we get into the execution part of things – as we start to gain ground on execution and things actually do start to grow, we find ourselves in this routine of bringing on new team members. And when you have a routine of bringing on new team members, then it becomes something that you go, oh, hey, we're doing this more than you know once a year. We need to systematize it. We need a better process. We need, we need checklists and we need forms and we need to know who's going to be doing what on what day and how to coordinate this stuff so it doesn't take all of our time up. And so when you're, when you're in a growth mode, then a lot of this stuff starts to come more easily. So just keep that in mind. If you're not growing right now, then you, know, you definitely should have a plan for growth. But before we get into talking about the, the growth mode, you need to understand – and you know, when I talk to business owners about the quality of the people on their team – this, I think this statistic is mentioned in the book Top Grading by Brad Smart, but I, I believe he says about 25%, statistically 25% of the population is going to be what are called A players. These are the top-notch 
kind of uh, um, not type A personalities, but A players from the standpoint of they're the kind of employees you want on your team. They're going to be top performers. And if only 25% statistically are A players and you have not had a plan over the years to intentionally put A players on your team, then you've probably wound up with the statistical average. You probably have 25% of your team that are A players and 75% that aren't A players, that are B or C players. And if that's the case, then your company can grow just by virtue of replacing your B and C players with A players. Now, I don't think it's possible to replace everybody with A players, but I do think it's possible to flip that statistic around so that rather than having 25% A players, you can have 75% A players and 25% B and C players. And part of that is because as good as we're going to try to get at onboarding the right people into our business, some are still going to go flip slip through the cracks and you're going to have some people who were a players that become B and C players for a variety of reasons. You know, it could be stuff that has nothing to do with work that they're just going through a family crisis, a health crisis, uh, something that takes them off of their game and they just can't uh, produce at the level they did before, whether that's, you know, like a managerial role or whether it's a production line employee, and people have all all sorts of we're human beings, so we got all kinds of stuff going on. And so some people will be A players and something happens and they're not. And hopefully it's just for a while and you stick with them and you support them and you do everything you can to to get them past that point in their life and they get back to where they're they normally are. But sometimes they don't. And so and sometimes you just decide that, hey, I, I'm not gonna let this person go. If 25% of your population is BNC players, that's not a problem. The problem comes when 75% of your population is BNC players and you're saying, I'm not going to make a change because you know I, I just want to be loyal to these people. Well, understand, if you're running a company where 75% of the people are BNC players, those BNC players don't have the opportunities they would have in a company that had more top performers. And the 25% of A players that you have are not going to stick around forever. If your commitment is to run a company that has three-quarters of its employees as B and C players, then don't expect the A players to stick around long-term. They're going to rotate through your company, and sooner or later you're going to wake up to the fact that you've got 25% A players, but they're a constant stream of different faces coming in and out of the business. Sometimes – so sometimes – a players can turn into B and C players because something going on in their personal life. The other thing that happens is something that I see off very often is that sometimes A players in one environment don't translate into A players in a different environment. So if you've got a company that's, a, say, a $3 million company and they've been there for quite a while and they're top performers, when the company grows to $5 million, $6 million, a lot of times they don't grow with it because they're kind of married to the, the old ways of doing things. And yes, they were tremendously productive back in the old days, but as times have changed and as the company's grown, as it's moved into new markets or it's adopted new technologies or it's changed its industry, they are not keeping up at the same level as other top performers around them. So you're going to have to deal with whether you've already got a bunch of A players or whether you're going to have to change out a lot of B and C players, the A, the A players that you have may not be A players forever, and you certainly need to work on changing out the Bs and Cs. So 
you're going to have uh, a healthy reality check here if you go through and kind of audit your org chart and say, if I'm really honest with myself about the capabilities of, of the people that I have on my team, where are they? Are they A's, B's, or C's? And to the extent you have B and C players, you need to ask yourself whether you're comfortable paying for performance that is not at a level that you could be achieving if you were to go out in the market and replace that person. So I don't. You know, one of the arguments that I get against this when I talk to clients about changing out B and C players for A players is that when I talk about it, I can almost make individuals sound like commodities. And that's not at all what I want to imply. I have a tremendous amount of respect for everybody who's ever been on my team. And my failings as a manager in large part were the the result or were the, the reason that they're no longer with me. You know, there were some cases where I just wasn't a great boss. I was learning things for the first time and and I wasn't providing them opportunities and they went somewhere else or I didn't train them to do something effectively in their role and it blew up in our face and we lost revenue and I had to fire them because I was faced with difficult financial choices. I mean, I've, I've told you guys this before. If there's a mistake you can make in small business, I feel like I've made it. But I never want to treat the individual team members like a commodity. So when I say that you need to change out B and C players for A players – I recognize that that is probably the toughest decision that most business owners and managers face is letting somebody go. The fact is, especially in small business environments where you've got 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 employees, you know every single one of those people. In a lot of cases, you know their spouses and their children by names. You know the significant events in their life. You know the significant milestones they've had with the company. And if that person is not performing, it's very, very tough to come to grips with the fact that you might have to let them go. And the farther up you move on the org chart and you get into those senior management positions, the more difficult it gets, not just because you know them, but because you look at the things that they do every day and you think, oh my gosh, how long is it going to take somebody else to come in here and learn that stuff? Um, we've even seen this happen on, at like line positions with a person who who was uh, really familiar with running a certain piece of equipment and nobody else had run that piece of equipment in 20 years. And they're going, yeah, he's slow and there's a lot of defects in the product, but nobody else knows how to run that machine. It could take weeks for somebody to learn how to run that machine. And so there's a lot of reasons that we don't replace the B and C players. And probably the best book that I could recommend, the best resource for getting your head around that is a book by Dr. Henry Cloud called Necessary Endings. And maybe we'll talk about that book as one whole podcast. It's certainly enough content there. But that book will, will maybe give you the, the motivation or the insight that you need to make some of these critical changes, these necessary endings that Cloud calls them. But let's say, for the sake of today's argument that you know you need to get rid of some B and C players. Let's even say that you're ready to have the tough conversation and you're ready to, as a friend of mine likes to say, give them the opportunity to exceed elsewhere. You know, you're going you're gonna to set them loose so that they can go find an opportunity that fits them more appropriately than your place does. So if you're trying to – if you kind of turn this corner and you go, I know I need to replace these people – 
the question that I would have for you as a business owner is, okay, so we're getting ready to go find these people, but I need to make sure that you're ready for them. I need to make sure that you're ready for the A players that we're about to bring on board your team. Because the goal of bringing on A players is really to duplicate yourself, but smarter. What we're looking for is people who have the same kind of drive, the same kind of um, kind of core values that you do, but they need to be smarter than you. And this is a tough thing for a lot of business owners to get their head around, that they need to go out and they need to hire people who are smarter than they are. Now, I work with a lot of smart people. I work with a lot of smart business owners. They didn't get to be successful and get to where they are today without being pretty stinking intelligent. But in the best companies that I work with, and and these aren't, aren't I mean, these are not um, these are not necessarily companies that are setting the world on fire. These are just well-run companies. These are companies that kind of have their act together. You walk in the door and you have a positive customer experience. You buy their product and you're glad that you bought it six months after you laid the money out and, and you're willing to pay a premium for it or whatever. But these are just companies that are just – they're well-run. They're not superstars. They're not the next uh, you know, Apple or the, the next Google. They're just, they're just well-run companies. And they're run by some pretty smart founders. These are intelligent people. But in every one of those well-run companies, I can point to a person that works for the owner that is much, much smarter than the owner is, more, more intelligent. They have a higher IQ score. However you want to phrase it, the owner realized that if my company is going to be well-run – then I have to go out and not only find people that share my values, I got to find people who have more brain cells than I do. I got to find, go out there and find people who are smarter than I am. And this is where ego is the enemy of business growth. If you have an ego that won't allow you to go out there and hire somebody who's smarter than you are, your business is not going to grow. It may grow for a little while, but it's going to grow because you're working your butt off more than you were last year. For you to get into a sustained mode of business growth, you have to build into your philosophy of hiring is that I'm going to constantly go out there and find people who are just like me in terms of their value set and adopting the vision of the company, but they're just smarter than I am. And a business, most business owners can get to about a million dollars without having to rely on a team or even learn good management skills. So they, they kind of get by on the force of their personality and their charisma. But once you, some of them can, can get to like $2 million, maybe even $5 million if they've got a team around them. And that team doesn't even have to be A players. There can be plenty of B and C players. And, guys, I see this all the time. These are the companies who, come, who hire me, companies that they got to a million dollars because the business owner could just sell a million dollars of whatever it was. And then – they said, well, you know, I can't sell anymore. I'm going to have to hire some other salesmen. So they went out and hired some other salesmen, but they continued to sell a million. They also went out there and they got some administrative help so they didn't have to keep the books and they didn't have to, to um, you know, manage inventory or whatever, whatever the other administrative stuff, customer service, installation, whatever. And so they hired some people to take over that kind of stuff. So maybe they could sell more than a million. Now they could sell a million and a half. They go out and, and hire another salesperson, and he's not great, but he can sell a half million. And over time, he gets a little bit better, and, and now he can sell 
you know, three quarters of a million or maybe even a million bucks. So now the company's at two million, two and a half million dollars. But you look around the company and the owner has surrounded himself not with people who are smarter than he is, but people who constantly need him around to tell them what to do. And the company's still doing two to three million dollars worth of business. This is very, very common. So what you have to to see though, to understand where the problem is in this, because a lot of people look at that business and go, oh, it's two to three million dollar business, highly successful, you know, only five percent of businesses or whatever the number is ever reach a million dollars. And well, that you know, they must be doing something right. But if you look at the layer just below the business owner and you start to talk about leadership positions in the company, what does that core leadership team look like? I guarantee you you're gonna have very high turnover. And it may not be high turnover across the entire team. Let's say there's like four people on the team. There'll probably be one position that's turned over like five times. And it's usually going to be an operations position because the business owner is going to maintain the, the handle on sales. They're kind of the chief salesperson as well as chief executive officer. But what they really need is somebody to run operations. While they're bringing in all the business, somebody else has to figure out how to deliver it. And that's the person who has to be pretty smart. They have to they have to be an A player. Well, an A player in an environment like that, or let's say a B-plus player in an environment like that, who sees that the business owner is never going to hire somebody smarter than they are because they're too insecure to, to face up to that, is going to realize that they're always going to be dealing with B and C players themselves because they don't have the final hiring decision. And sooner or later, that person is going to get fed up and they'll leave. And it's very common to see in these companies that are 2 to $5 million a very high turnover rate in the leadership team in one or two positions. And that's usually indicative of a business owner who's a little bit insecure about hiring really, really smart people. Without A players, one of the things that's not going to happen is the owner is not going to be able to transition into management. When you don't have any A players on your team, you never get the luxury of stepping back and mentoring other leaders and really managing the company. You just go from one firefight to the next. That's all you're doing is putting out fires from one week to the next, one quarter to the next, one year to the next. And five years later, you look back and the company's been doing $2 million for the last five years, hasn't grown a dime. And you don't really have any idea what you've spent the last five years doing except taking care of upset customers, projects that were behind schedule, uh, facilities that needed to be updated and were constantly breaking down. And you're just going from one fire to the other fire to the other fire to the other fire. And that's very common. And, you know, what's sad is that some business owners are happy doing that because it satisfies that insecurity. They, they feel like, well, if it weren't for me, this business wouldn't survive. And that's true, but that's not a good thing, right? That's, that's not a business that you have. That's a job. You're paying for the privilege of writing yourself your own paycheck, and that's not a long-term strategy. So what, you know, what, what I would say to you if a little of this stings is ask yourself, have I been afraid to hire A players because I have an issue with hiring people smarter than I am? And some of the times, some, some ways this will manifest itself is feeling like people are going to take advantage of you. When you hear things like, we just can't find good people anymore, if you dig a little deeper, you'll usually find a story or two where that business owner was burned 
by somebody who came in and they feel like they took advantage of them. Now, if you dig a little bit deeper, you might find out that the business owner didn't provide great opportunities for that person, sold that person a bill of goods in the interview process that turned out not to be true, uh, maybe took advantage of that person with um, undermarket wages. I mean, there could be a lots of reasons that, that the individual that the business owner feels burned by did what they did. But if that's you, ask yourself, can I get past my own insecurity and just go out there and hire somebody who's smarter than I am? Because the thing is, what makes you a business owner is your willingness to take the risk to sign up for all the responsibility, to have the broad shoulders, to, to basically say the buck stops here. And there are lots of very intelligent, top-performing people that don't want to do that. And they make great employees. But what happens is a lot of business owners look at those very smart people and they automatically assume that those people want the same thing that I do. Those people want to run their own company. They're smart, so they must want to run their own company. And that's just not the case. A lot of smart, smart, smart people have no desire to be business owners. They love the well-defined sandbox of a good job description. They love the accountability and the support and the coaching and the mentoring that comes along with being an employee. They love the resources at their disposal. They don't have maybe they don't have capital to start their own company. Maybe they don't maybe they have capital but they don't want to risk it starting their own company. So don't assume that just because somebody's intelligent they want to take over your business. Lots of those people will make great employees. So let's talk about recruiting. And I really like uh, what um Smart talks about in his book, his approach to hiring people, hiring really good people. And, and this applies to sales. It applies to a lot of things. But recruiting is a numbers game. It's a numbers game. It's, it's only difficult because you have to go through so many people to find the right ones because A players are statistically scarce. If they grew on trees... It wouldn't be a numbers game. You just go out there and, and chances are the next person I hire is going to be an A player. But that's that's not the way it works. And a lot of companies think that, well, you know, we've got these great recruiting materials. We've got these brochures that say we're an industry leader and we've got these list of awards where we've been recognized for this, that, and the other thing. And B and C players, well, they'd be intimidated by those things so they wouldn't apply. That's not true. You can't think that your recruiting materials are going to weed out all but the A players. That's not going to happen. That's naive. You can have great recruiting materials, and you're going to have tons of B and C players applying for your next job. So one of the things that you have to wrap your head around is patience. If you are in dire, dire straits and your controller just said, I'm leaving on Monday and it's Thursday afternoon, and you have to have somebody by Monday morning. I can just about I can well I can I can absolutely guarantee one of two things is going to happen. You're going to make a bad hire or you're going to pay through the nose for an okay hire. But you're not going to get a great hire because the great hire people are not available on the exact Friday that you need them available. There just aren't enough of them. And there may be some divine appointment, maybe some answered prayer, and you come up with the miracle. But it would be a miracle for you to get a great hire in that short amount of time. You have to be patient. If this is what you're going to commit to, 
developing a team of A players. And from now on, every time I recruit somebody, it's, I'm not going to settle for a B and C player. Then you have to be willing to take a little bit more time, possibly a lot more time than you're used to taking with your process. You have to, when you're talking about recruiting and going out in the market to find somebody, you have to begin with the end in mind. You have to understand what does success mean for this job? And not success like how am I going to feel when I get a successful person in this job? It has to be objective. It can't be a subjective criteria you're going to use to identify what success means in that job. So if it's a sales position and you're saying, what does success look like in this sales position? Is it a million dollars worth of business that they bring in a year? Is it 1.25? Is it 2? Is it 10? What's the number that it can be objectively measured? If it's a customer service rep, what are the hours that they need to be there? What does their you know, phone answer rate percentage need to be? What, how much uh, time on each call do you want them to spend? What do you want their educational background to be? All of these things are very, very objective, and they don't leave anything up to the warm, fuzzy feeling that the interview gets or doesn't get when they're trying to find this person. You have to understand whether the um, – you have to where, – where does the job fit in the company and in the company's future? So it's not just about what that particular employee is going to do. It's about what is that job going to do. Is that job even going to exist in five years? Or are we going to go from one of these people to 20 of these people if we're going to grow this side of the business? Having an understanding of not only what the success for that job looks like, but what that job looks like in the total company and in the company's future can be key. Because if you find out or if you know because you're asking these kinds of questions that, hey, we're hiring our, our first customer service representative – but in 10 years, we're going to have 200 customer service representatives. So it might be good to go ahead and, and talk to somebody who's got some managerial experience because they can work the phones now, but in six months when we hire two more people, they can manage those two people. If we find somebody we really like and they've got the great personality and they've got a great educational background, but they've never med- managed another soul in their life, not even during a college you know, a restaurant job, then – it might be tough. We, you know, we're going to hire somebody now, but in six months, we're not only going to be hiring another CSR rep, we're going to have to hire another manager. So understand where the job, the particular job fits, not only on the com- in the company's org chart, but in the company's future. And one of the things that you can do, um, top grading has a, a format they call a job scorecard, but it's basically you get all of this stuff. Like what is it? What does success look like in this job? Where does this job fit in the company? What's the future for this position in the company? Do we expect the person who has this position to have opportunities to move up or sideways in the company to transition between departments? All of that stuff about this job and performance in this job and the ideal person that would fill this job needs to go on one page. And top grading in the book, Smart calls this a job scorecard. You can come up with whatever format you want. I don't think the format is tremendously important. I think getting it on one page is huge. And understand, this is not a job description. There are job description elements in it, but it's a much bigger picture of what this job does in the company and what's critical for success. So if you say, 
um, like going back to the earlier example, if this is if this is the tip of the iceberg for a particular department, you need to indicate that whoever we hire has a really, really good chance, if they're the right person, to manage this entire department five years from now. So when we interview people, you're asking yourself, can I see this person running a department in five years? If they're 18 years old, that might be really hard to see if everybody else that's going to be managing an apartment is in their mid-40s. So you have to take that kind of stuff into account. One of the other things that I will say about recruiting is that the CEO's job re- really comes down to finding talent. If I don't think that this is something that you should delegate in a small company um, and even in large companies. If you read like Jack Welch's biography – straight from the gut, he, it's very clear that his primary responsibility was to identify and develop talent in the company. And he spent an inordinate amount of his time just trying to identify who was the next person who was going to move up. And it's fascinating when you get into picking his successor and all of the stuff that went around identifying who was going to become the next chairman of General Electric – that is what the CEO's role is about. If nothing else, it's about finding talent. And it's work that deserves a time commitment and a disciplined approach from the CEO. If you're not willing to commit the time to it, and I'm, I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, when we absolutely have to have somebody, I don't have any problem taking half of my day out and and helping with the interviews. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about why don't you commit half a day a week to identifying talent whether you need it or not. I mean, that's if you look at the companies that really grow quickly and that grow well and don't have major missteps and starts and stops, they're always looking for talent. And in order to do that, you not only do you have to set aside the time, but you have to spend it wisely so that you've got strong networks. One of the groups that um, I work with locally is C12, and we, there's, it's a group of fellow business owners. And I'm ve- what I've been very impressed with is the informal but very strong network that these business owners have developed for sharing uh, candidates for jobs that they find and asking for help sourcing candidates for open positions that they have. The best CEOs are always looking at resumes. They're always evaluating talent wherever they see it. And if you can become known as someone who's always looking for talent, if if people in your industry are seeking you out because colleagues say, hey, go talk to that person about you know a position or go talk to that person if, you, if you're looking for somebody, then it means you're doing something right because you're developing those networks and you're known. And there's a couple of people that I can think of in my world who are just known for this. They, they're always looking and they're, I've always got their eyes open and they're always willing to talk to somebody because they understand – that developing a network and making this part, this um, this talent search part of their weekly schedule is something that they really have to do if they're going to have a long-term pipeline of successful A players coming into the company. The other thing that you need to do as far as the CEO's role is really leverage your team. I talked about a network of fellow business owners but your team can be one of the best networks that you have available. And if you're not t- 
talking to your team about recruiting people that they that they know who are top performers, then you're missing out on a huge built-in resource. You should be offering bonuses for people who recruit folks successfully to your team. And the bonuses, one of the one of the nice things to do with bonuses is to vest them over the life of the employment from the hire date to when you kind of confirmed that they're a tenured A player on your team. So let's say that that you you've you know that in a developer's position, so you develop computer software, and you know that to get a developer uh, who's going to be an A player, you really have to get through a six-month uh, process of learning the tool sets that you use, learning the project management methodology, methodologies that you use, learning the client relationships that are going to be recurring to really know whether this person that you've hired is going to be an A player. And so you might tell your development team, hey, we're looking for folks out there that are just like you guys. They're driven the way you are. They have the technical expertise that you do. They have the ed- educational background that you do. They want to work the same hours that you do. And we're willing to pay you $5,000 for a successful hire. And this could be, a, say, a, a $70,000, $80,000 position. And you're paying less than 10% of the higher price so, you know, so or the, the annual salary. And so you might adjust that. If you go through a recruiting firm, it's 30% oftentimes. So let's say that you, you say, we'll pay you $5,000 for anybody who successfully um, refers somebody in that gets hired. But we'll pay you – let's say we'll pay you $1,000 on the day that they're hired and we'll pay you the remaining $4,000 when they hit that six-month anniversary date. Because you guys all know it takes six months to tell whether the proof is in the pudding as far as this particular job. And that can be a very effective way to get your employees thinking long term, not just, hey, I need to get so-and-so in here and get them on the payroll so I can get a bonus. But you do need to reward them. If they're helping you bring talent into the company, that's one of the most valuable things that they can do for you. And I think that there definitely should be a reward for that. They should see their role as bringing new talent into the company as much as you see your role as bringing new talent into the company. A lot of people are going to re- use recruiters, and that's fine. I don't. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about recruiters, but you have one of the things that you have to do is allow recruiters to fail gracefully, or you're going to do more harm than good. If you if all you want to do is is throw the hot potato to the recruiter and say find find me somebody good and five months in it doesn't work out and you fire the person and there was a six month clause in your contract with the recruiting agency where you could claw back a portion of their fee if the person didn't stay six months and you just hammer them over the head with it then you're not going to get any more good referrals from that recruiting agency. Here's the thing. All the recruiting agency is there to do, this is how you need to look at their job description. They are there to feed you leads. That's it. They have no responsibility to make sure that you onboard the right person. It's not their business. It's your business. It's not their processes. It's your process. If you want to completely outsource the hiring process, then understand that you're completely outsourcing a huge part of not only the technical or technical expertise or professional competency that you need, but you're also outsourcing all of the value fit, all of the cultural fit, all of the intangibles that ultimately make your company what it is on a daily basis. And if you're doing that with a recruiting firm, I think you're crazy. You know, bringing in the right kind of people is one of the it's it's probably the most important thing you can do next to sales. If you don't have sales, nothing else matters. But 
don't look at the recruiting firm as, well, it's their job to get me A players. No, it's their job to get you leads. It's your job to have a process that can identify in that pool of leads who the A players are. And then it's your job after you've hired those people to put together a company where they can excel as A players. So if if you're blaming B and C players on the recruiting firm, it could be for two different reasons that they're not a players it could be that you had a really cruddy screen to run these leads through and you let through b and c players when you shouldn't have or it could be that they were a players and they didn't work out because you're running a cruddy company but neither one of those is the recruiting firm's fault so understand that if you use a recruiting firm there's going to be failures the same way that if you don't use a recruiting firm, there's going to be failures. Just because they call themselves a recruiting firm is no guarantee of 100% placement success with A players. That's a pretty high bar, and I don't know anybody who can achieve it. So don't beat up on your recruiting firms. Next thing I'll say is you got to pay market rates. This is all part of the recruiting side of things. We're going to get into hiring in a minute and then training last, but as far as recruiting goes, you have to commit to pay market rates because you can shoot yourself in the foot by recruiting from the wrong compensation pool. You really need to understand what is the market paying for this particular position. And you can shoot yourself in the foot by underpaying, but what a lot of people don't understand is you can also shoot yourself in the foot by overpaying. Because it's not about the money unless you make it about the money. People want more than just a paycheck. And that sounds cliche, but it's absolutely true. When you survey employees about job satisfaction, very little of the response for negative job satisfaction has to do with undercompensated. It almost always has to do with things like morale, communication, environment. Those are the big three. And a lot of them, you know, when you talk about morale, that can be tied to the environment and the communication very, very easily. When, when people say, I'm, disha- I'm, I'm not satisfied with my job because I'm not getting paid enough, that rarely happens. People know what they're going to get paid. They don't take the job knowing they can't live off of it. They don't take the job and agree to get paid an hourly wage and then use that as the excuse for why they're not happy with the job. Most people want to be happy every day. Some don't, but most people want to be happy every day. So – with the things that they know are going to happen, like if I work 40 hours, I'm going to make X amount of dollars because I'm making Y rate per hour. When they know that, then it's it's just a non-issue. So what they really want is more than the paycheck. And if you overcompensate for poor management or terrible working conditions, people are going to quit. So – The same way that people don't gripe about being underpaid, they don't stick around just because they're being overpaid. They will for a while. I mean, uh, unfortunately, some people get themselves into a lifestyle where they have to have that paycheck and they don't feel like they have any other options. But eventually, trust me, poor management, poor environment, poor morale, all those, those big three even if you're overcompensating them, they will quit. If you're undercompensating, they'll quit a lot faster. <laughs> but overcompensating can hide some of the bigger problems that you have for a time, but eventually they're going to come back to bite you. 
if you are paying market rates, then you're going to be able to compete with other companies on the basis of opportunity, on the basis of your culture, on the basis of your competency in the market. And those are all great things. So if you'll, if you'll commit to pay market rates, then you know, hey, I can go to toe-to-toe with any one of my competitors or anybody else who might be trying to hire these people away, and it's an even playing field. So I've got my eye on the right ball. I've got my eye, I've got my focus, my attention on the things that really matter, which are what opportunities am I providing these employees what is the, the culture? Is it a healthy culture in this company? Are, are we competent? Are we good at what we do? Because if we've got those three things covered and I'm paying market rates, you may try to pull these people away from me by paying over market rates, but sooner or later they're going to recognize that that's not going to make up for the crappy management you have or the, the cruddy environment or, or whatever the failings are of your particular business. And a lot of people, will, when it comes to trying to figure out what these market rates are, a lot of people put stock in salary surveys. And you can get salary surveys you know, in five minutes on the Internet. You can find 30 bucks or so. You can find a salary survey for just about any position. But the problem is that in the markets that we're talking about with, say, 20 to 100 employees, a lot of those salary surveys aren't accurate because – the discrete job functions that you'll find in much larger companies typically aren't present in small companies. So, for instance, if you're looking at a controller's job description, a control your job description for your $5 million company may say controller. But when you look at the salary survey, you might be pulling from controllers that are in Fortune 5000 companies that every single one of them is going to oversee a department of six or seven or eight people, and your controller oversees a department of two or three people. So salary surveys are readily available, but usually they're not as accurate as they need to be for small businesses. So what I would tell people is go back to your network. Talk to companies. You know, If you've done the work as a CEO to develop this strong network, Go and talk to other companies your size or companies that are in, you know, if, if com- competition is one of your fears about going to competitors to ask for advice, which I, I don't think you should have. But if you do, that's fine. Go to other similarly sized companies that have the same kinds of job functions. You know, there are lots of industries that have customer service reps that essentially do the same thing. Like they answer the phone and they solve customers' problems without being there. Okay. It doesn't matter whether it's an HVAC business or a pest control business or an IT company. Yeah, the technical background is different, and you can spec that out and tell whether people have it or not. But what are the other things that are going to make that position uh, vital? And what are people paying for those those folks? And how much workload are they handling in terms of the size of customer accounts? And is it recurring customer accounts or one-time customer? You can learn all of that stuff from from a you know half dozen or so good conversations within your network. And as far as a salary survey goes, you're better off with a good salary history in most cases. So if somebody can give you, you, you should always ask for a complete and thorough salary history for this person. And an A player is not going to mind giving you that. A B and C player who's trying to pose as an A player who wants to make more than they're really worth may balk at giving you a salary history, and that's okay. You just you end the interview process at that point. You don't have to go any farther. You don't even have to meet the person face-to-face because a lot of this should be handled up front. So let's get into – those are my thoughts on recruiting 
and I'll, I'll tell you again, that, the book is fantastic. Go out and buy Top Grading. I'll put a link in the show notes at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 014 and read Bradley Smart's book. Uh, it's got a lot of great um, practical advice in it. And that's just going to continue as we get into the hiring part. Um, what, one of the things I really liked about Smart that I had not heard anywhere else uh, in any of my other kind of HR research or tool sets that we were using with clients to onboard new, new team members, Smart talks about truth serum. And I'm pretty sure that's the exact phrase that he uses. And the truth serum is this. You start and end the interview process or the hiring process with any potential candidate by saying this. One of the things that we're going to do in the, at the end of this process is we're going to interview a former boss, coworker, manager, etc., probably more than one. And it's going to be your responsibility to set up these interviews. You're going to give us a complete work history. It's going to list out who all of your former bosses, managers, coworkers were. And we're going to select some of those and ask you to set up interviews or conversations, phone calls. We're going to ask you to set up phone calls so that we can talk to those people and just get their take on whether you'd be a good fit for this position, your work history, salary history, that kind of stuff. That's the truth serum. So because we're about to ask them to fill out a whole bunch of information, this is not collecting a bunch of resumes and trying to pick the right one. Okay, It goes a lot. If you're going to make this a process that you're going to put a lot of uh, time and effort into, it's going to use some pretty good tools. And to, for those tools to have any value, they have to have good information in them. So this truth serum guarantees that you're going to get the good information unless you have somebody who's just a pathological liar and can't help themselves. But typically, if I'm applying for a job and you tell me before I start filling out the paperwork, hey, I'm gonna, I, need, I just need to let you know how our process works. I'm about to ask you to fill out a whole bunch of stuff. And then I'm going to ask you to come in for a two- to three-hour interview. And at the end, I'm going to ask you I'm, – I'm going to pick out two or three of your previous supervisors from your work history. And I just want to have a quick maybe five, ten-minute conversation with them. But, but I need you to set up that phone call. So when you start filling this stuff out, don't put people on there that you don't want me to call. Or you can put them on there because I want your complete work history – but if you don't want me to call them, you need to be able to tell me why you don't want me to call them. So if it's your current supervisor, I get it, right? You know, so you're not happy where you're at and you want to move on to something else. Um, but also you need to understand if that was a very if, – if that's where most of your work-related experience that we need in this position comes from and you don't want me to talk to your existing supervisor, then – Find a colleague or or maybe somebody who's a junior supervisor who's also familiar with your work who is willing to keep this confidential between the three of us. I'm going to need their information, but it's going to be your responsibility to set those up. And it's amazing. Uh, well, I can tell you the first thing that happens is you weed out about 30 to 50% of your population. <laughs> yeah. And the reason that you weed them out is because they were – not completely truthful in their resume, and they realize that there's no way they're going to – if you're talking to them because you first saw their resume and 
they're not going to be able to back up significant parts of that resume with this truth serum approach, then they just they don't call you back. They just kind of fade into gray and you never hear from them again. And so it's very, very helpful in whittling down who's really serious about taking the next step in the interview. One of the things that uh, – the next thing you're going to have for as far as weeding out C players especially is that every candidate is going to complete a detailed work history. And I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, an example of this that's from the Top Grading website. You can go find it if you'd like. Just put uh, Top Grading Detailed Work History, and I'm sure it'll come up. But uh, this is a little bit more extensive than your typical – it's a lot more extensive than your typical resume because it includes all the tough questions about the kind of position you held and how long you held it. And that, that stuff's kind of standard. But what's not standard is you know how much you made in that position. So – Again, you're going back and getting that detailed um, salary history for the person. And look, I mean, here's the thing. If your job posting says that the job pays between seventy dollars and $80,000 and there's a C player out there that's currently making $50,000 and they think, you know what, I, I'm just going to take a flyer and see if I can get this because this would be – a 40% pay, pay raise for me. So I'm going to go after it. And they complete a detailed work history that includes what they've been paid. It's going to be very hard for you to justify taking somebody from $40,000 to $70,000. Because if they were worth $70,000, they should be making $70,000 right now. Now, in the current environment, we got lots of people who five, ten years ago were making $70,000 and for a time had to take a $40,000 job and now are trying to work their way back up. And I get that. But that too will show up in their salary history and it will it'll make it apparent that, hey, they're capable of doing $70,000 work. But they, they, had, you know, they got laid off and they had to make ends meet or whatever. But you want to see every bit of that as their future boss. And if they won't share it with you, that's okay. You've got other candidates that you can go after. Remember, you have to be patient. This is not going to happen overnight. Statistically, A players don't grow on trees. So you're going to have – statistically, you're going to have to interview four people to find an A player because only one in four is going to be an A player. I should have said that differently. You're not going to have to interview four people. You're going to have to have four leads – to have a good shot at having one A player in those four leads. Hopefully with this method, you're going to get four leads and you're only going to have to do one interview because your C players are going to drop out as soon as you tell them that it's going to be their responsibility to line up an interview with one of their previous supervisors. So one of the four is going to drop out immediately. Of the remaining three, one other one is probably going to drop out as soon as you ask for this detailed work history. And if they don't drop out, it will be apparent from looking at their salary history that they're not a good fit for this job because it's kind of over their head. It will represent a huge leap forward in their earning capacity that just doesn't line up with their skill set. Maybe they were a little too generous and uh, and and semantically generous in their resume descriptions of what they did when it actually gets down to it and the and the detailed work history. You know they never supervised people, or maybe they supervised one person. 
um, you know, that kind of stuff. And so of the four, now two are out. One bowed out immediately with the truth serum test. The other one started looking at their their work history and said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get the job if I fill all this stuff out. And they bow. The last two fill it out. Now, one of these is the A player that you're going to interview. The other one is maybe a B player. And what what I suggest everybody do, and I think Smart advocates this in his book as well, is you do a telephone interview first. You start running through some of the responses, and you definitely know you, – you may decide, well, I don't want to interview this person because they sound like a B player. But at a bare minimum, you know who you want to interview first because the A player, you can just feel it over the phone and you see it in the work that they've done, and you go, that's who I'm going to bring in first. So this can help you – weed out the C players. A couple of tools that they use, uh, one's called a career snapshot. And this is kind of neat. I mean, like I said, it's kind of like the the um, the job scorecard that we talked about earlier. Smart has a pretty specific format for this in his book. Um, he's got a very specific format too for the career snapshot. And it's kind of cool. I mean, the, the most graphical part of it is the salary survey so kind of in almost like a bar bar graph format charts their salary history over the last several years and it also depending on the width of the bar you can see how long they've worked for different companies and that's one thing that experienced interviewers will often look at resumes to see how often people jump around and you know it's if you find somebody who's been through you know 10 jobs in in you know, 10 years, then you go, uh, you know, I don't, they, they kind of restless soul or they've got other issues that keep them from, from sticking around for a while. Um, and this salary or the, um, career snapshot shows that kind of graphically. Cause you'll see like 10 bars in 10 years and be like, holy cow. But if you look at somebody who's only had two jobs in 10 years, they've got these really wide bars that show how long they've been at these companies and the height of the bar is how much they were making. And it kind of be like a trapezoidal shape where, Maybe they started at forty thousand, and over five years it went up to fifty-five thousand. And they started the next job at maybe sixty thousand. They got a, a jump, and they went up to seventy thousand. Um, so you can see that. And I kind of like the career snapshot. The only thing, I mean, you can get software from uh, Top Grading that will do this stuff for you. It produces all the forms, and that might not be a bad investment if you if you're really going to jump in on this and you're going to commit to a culture of constantly interviewing and vetting A players to make sure you've got the best on your team, I guarantee you you're going to be a top performer in your industry. Um, but if you're not going to do that and you're going to take this approach more on an as-needed basis um, with a little bit more intention about when you plan to start replacing people, maybe you start looking six months out rather than when they give their notice or when you have to term them, then you might it, it's it might be a lot of work to do this career snapshot stuff if you don't have the software. But I still think you could probably sketch it out on a napkin and it would give you a much better idea of what you're dealing with. The other thing that, that I definitely advocate, and this is a tool that Smart uses, and I've seen this used in lots of different ways. It's there he calls them interview guides. And I think these are very valuable. So you basically take the career work history and you prepare some questions ahead of time. And the questions are pretty generic. Um, but here's what I like about the interview guides. I've heard lots of business owners give interviews or, or conduct interviews. 
And the problem with them is that they usually spend 50 to 75% of the time talking about their business and only 25 to 50% of the time listening to what the candidate has to say about themselves and how, and, and how they'll fit in the business. And so my biggest challenge with a lot of business owners is just getting them to be quiet during the interview process. That becomes much easier if you've gone to the, through the work ahead of time to prepare an interview guide. And the interview guide, the ones that I've used in the past, tend to be um, – they could be five, six, seven, even ten pages long. And typically you'll have each kind of job stop, each work – and and it doesn't – it's not companies. It's like – what positions were they in? So if somebody held three different positions in the company, we would cover those, even though they're in the same company, I would cover those in three separate sections of the interview guide. And so each section of the interview guide might be half a page. And they cover kind of the same questions but for different positions. And it might be, you know, what did you like about the position? What did you like least about the position? Um, describe a management challenge you had in the position describe a difference of opinion you had with your immediate supervisor. And you get into very specific instances, circumstantial anecdotes about their past performance or their past work history. And those allow you to have better insight into the person and how they deal with problems and how they deal with performance and whether they're going to be capable of dealing with the culture that you have. And so you'll go through... And let's say that over the last um, 10 years, they've had eight positions. Well, that would be, in my book, that would be probably a four, five, six, seven uh, page interview guide. And I would probably spend maybe, I don't know, 30, 30 minutes or so preparing for that interview by listing out where the positions were and what questions I wanted to ask them about those. And the real secret sauce is, I mean, the interview guide is great because it allows you to have a lot of intention around going into the interview. And because you have something to talk about that's about the candidate, it keeps you from talking about the company just to fill dead air because you just go on to the next question. If the candidate is one of those that gives just real short answers and doesn't want to elaborate on anything, then you've got a place to go and you don't just jump in to feel, fill the uncomfortableness with you know the company's history or how you started the company from nothing. So that's helpful. The interview guide is very helpful for that. But the secret sauce is in joint interviews. You really need to make two copies of this interview guide, and you need to tag team it with another person. And the reason that you need to do that is because while one person is worried about asking the question, the other person is, gonna, is going to be listening to the response and evaluating the response. And in a two- to three-hour interview, you're not going to be able to stay on for the whole time. It's just you're gonna, your attention is going to fade. Your cell phone's going to beep. You're going to see something out the window. Somebody's going to stick their head in to, to tell you something in an emergency, and your attention's going to drift. If you've got another person in the room with you do, who's tag-teaming on the interview, they don't miss the parts that you miss, and you don't miss the parts that they miss. And you come away with a much better interview experience, much better recall of what happened, and you also have better judgment because you have two heads around the table talking about what they saw and heard and, and pushing back on each other. So things that I might have thought 
were very uh, detrimental to the candidate's experience. The other person goes, no, I mean, you just, you completely read that wrong. She was nervous because you, you made a comment that made her feel uncomfortable. So you just need to get over that. That's not a big deal. And that's happened before. So interviewing teams, that's huge. The other thing is don't think that this is a 30-minute interview. When you commit to do this process right, it's two to three hours. And business owners will tell me, good grief, you're telling me I'm going to interview four people for this position possibly. You know, We're going to get 16 candidates. I'm going to interview four of those. And I got to spend two to three hours with each one. I mean, you're talking about three day, three days worth of work. And I look at them and I say, "Yeah, we're talking about three days worth of work to get the next person on board who's going to take this company to the next level. We want this person. We're going to spend three days finding the right person that we hope stays with us for the next three thousand days. Do you think that that's a good return on your investment of time?" And they look at me sheepishly and go, yeah, I guess you're right. So you, the, the other nice thing about interview guides is let's say you're doing those four interviews. If you're doing the interview guides, then you're measuring everybody against the same yardstick. So sometimes uh, different candidates will come in and the business owner has plenty of time to interview them and they get a very thorough interview. And the next day, there's some pressing issue that's come up or they're tired or it's a short work day or whatever. And that interview candidate gets – instead of a 45-minute interview that the person got the day before, they get a 15-minute interview. And you take it to a committee who's supposed to pick the final one or, or discuss the merits of each candidate, and they're comparing apples and oranges because they're comparing impressions and notes from a 15-minute interview to impressions and notes from a 45-minute interview. So using the interview guide helps make sure that everybody's on the same footing. And that's very important, especially when you're doing these on different days. If you're going to interview three candidates on the same day and the same three people are going to be in each interview, then – you know, it's not uncommon for them not to use interview guides. Everybody just takes notes on their own legal pad, and they compare at the end of the day, and they pick a candidate, and they usually reach a consensus. But if this is going to happen over multiple days where your recollection is going to fade or where different people are going to have to sit in because somebody's not available on that day, the interview guide is a really great tool. What else? Um, the last thing is going back to that truth serum. You have to follow through with this. You have to ask them to arrange the reference calls. And because and I've actually been in cases where up to this point, through the, the work history, through the interview guides, through the actual interview experience, the two candidates were almost exactly evenly matched. We literally did not know who we were going to pick. And what it came down to was how they handled arranging the reference calls. And, and it was very interesting because one of the people initially had said uh, on their work history form, they listed their, exist, their current boss as somebody they did not want us to contact. And they just said, you know, I'm, this, is a, this would be a new opportunity for me. I know they're not going to want to lose me. And... You know, I'd, I'm just not comfortable right now with you calling them because if they found out I was looking for another job, they might take it personally. I could lose my job. And the other person, uh, everybody knew that she was looking and she didn't have any problem with us calling them. And initially, so we're thinking, well, it would be, you know, she kind of had the lead because it would, 
allow us to talk to her current boss, whereas we're not going to get to talk to the current boss of the, of the other candidate. And they were dead even match up to this point. And the one who initially did not want us to call the boss came back and said, you know what, I, I do want you to call him because the experience that I've been through and what I've seen as far as how you guys bring people on board, I know this is the place I want to be because the people that you're going to be bringing in for me to work with are going to have to go through this same process. And I want to be in a place like that. So I'm going to tell my boss today that I've been looking at this opportunity and I'm going to ask him to give you a call and just give you his honest opinion on that. And the other person was actually hedging a little bit on the, the boss that she had put down that she said she was okay with us calling. She wanted us to call a couple of her bosses before that and see if, you know, based on their, their interaction with us, if we would make the call without calling her current boss. And so it's, you have to follow through with that truth serum because in this case, how they handled it was also indicative of how they were going to handle future uncomfortable situations within the company. And one of them was willing to, on the basis of everything that he knew, stand up and go through the uncomfortable situation because he felt like it was the best thing to do. The other one, if the uncomfortable situation was at all unavoidable, she wanted to avoid it. So go through with having them make the reference calls or arrange the reference calls. So the last thing we're going to talk about is the, the training piece. So you've done the hard work of recruit. Well, first, you've decided that you're going to hire smarter people than you. That's, the, that's step one. Get past your own ego. Go, I'm okay with this. Step two is recruiting, and that, that involves understanding that it's a numbers game. You have to do the work to think about what kind of job you're recruiting for and what place does that have in your company. You have to develop strong networks and make this kind of a continual part of your job description as the CEO. You have to understand that you're going to pay market rates and not try to cheat people out of a little bit of money because it's going to skew the, their, uh, their longevity in other areas. Then you get into hiring, and we talked about in the hiring process how important the truth serum is at the beginning and the end, and we talked about weeding out C players with the work history and using the interview guides to put everybody in a level playing field and get better feedback and better insight into whether this is going to be somebody that you want to work with. I'll, I'll add that you need when you're using interview guides, you need to understand that this is not a 15- to 20-minute conversation. These are easily two- to three-hour conversations and with three people in the room with the candidate and two interviewers the two to three hours it goes by very very quickly if it's just you and one other person trying to talk for two to three hours it becomes difficult uh, i don't know why it, it just does but when you've got the three people in the room it just feels like a natural conversation to be going back and forth so you've made the call you know who you're going to hire. You're ready to take the next step. You've got whom you believe is an A player, and you're ready to integrate them into your company. Orientation, day one, is the most important day that they have with your company because you've only got one shot to make a first impression with them as an employee. Yes, they have impressions of your company from their interviews. They have, you know, they've been to your place of business. They've seen your conference rooms or, or they've seen your plant, your factory floor, sales floor, whatever it is. But they weren't an employee. 
Now they're going to be standing at the water cooler with their colleagues. Now they're going to be going to lunch with their their workmates. Now they're going to be walking the halls trying to find out where they're supposed to go. And you only have one shot at this. They're only going to be the it's only going to be their first day one time. So you have to understand first of all how important the orientation process is on day 1. And one of the things that I think is is really important. You've gone to all this work to identify the um, the tangible parts of the job, so the job description, the educational background that's required, the amount of money that it pays, what it looks like in the company's history, blah, blah, blah. And you've talked about all that stuff. You've got your arms around it. This is your opportunity to do something else. It's your opportunity to infuse two things into the employee, and this is the only – it's not the only time you get, but it's the absolute best time to infuse these two things. Number one is passion. It's, it's the best time you have to infect this person with passion because they want to believe that they've started the next chapter of their life that's going to be best for them. They want to believe that they've joined a cause that's worthy. They want to believe that they've joined a company that's going to accomplish something in the world. And so they want to be passionate about it. Six months from now, they may not want to be passionate about it. After they've worked through the night on a special project, they may not feel like being very passionate about where they work. But today, they want to be passionate. They want to go home to their spouse and say, this is the best decision I've ever made for my career. And that's a gift. Most of the time, your employees don't walk through the door wanting to feel passionate as much as they do that first day. So this is a great day for you to infect them, for you to infuse them with passion. And it's also a great day for you to infuse them with pace. I'm a big believer in the importance and the value of pace when it comes to work environments. I like a fast-paced work environment not a rushed work environment, not a chaotic, but a, an environment with pace where people have purpose, where you look at what's going on and you see that people are purposeful. They're not lackadaisical and they're not frantic. They're purposeful. And that pace is something that you have to communicate from day one because that will be what they take to day two, day three, day four. If day one, and I've seen this so many times and I just shake my head at it, if day one is... Uh, they show up, they go into HR, and they fill out their I-9 and their W-4, W-4, and then they're shown to their office or their cubicle, and they're given an employee manual. And they say, you know, you know, today we just want you to read through this, and uh, Bob from IT will be by, and he'll show you how to log in later this afternoon. But before lunch, just spend your time going through the, the, uh, the employee manual, and maybe there's an operations manual over here you can go through. And then we'll we'll go to lunch, three or four of us, and in the afternoon you can spend with Bob. And I go, you just missed it because you've come in and that you've basically said, um, we don't have anything important for you to do today. It's not really important that our employees have purpose or have intent. We just need to check off a box today. And do you think that tomorrow is going to be any different? You know, they're they're wanting to jump in. They're wanting to have purpose. They're wanting to move with pace and you've basically just said, hey, sit on this couch and hang out for a while. So you've got one opportunity to do this. 
this has to be a big enough priority to be deliberate and properly resourced. You you have to get the it, what I tell people is if you if you think choreography, you're close to getting it. This has to be choreographed. You really and I don't think you can get too detailed at it. I've seen it where companies have the schedule down to the minute, and I think that is excellent. Now, you're not necessarily telling the employee you have it down to the minute and giving them an itinerary, but there's never a point during that first day when they don't feel purpose and pace and passion. And I'm a big believer in this. In small companies, when you're talking about 20 to 100 employees, I think that that passion is best communicated by the boss. I think their first day spent with the boss is much, much better than their first day spent with a coworker. Because you have to remember, this is the only first impression that you're going to make. And if they spend that first day with the owner or the CEO of the company, it has a completely different effect than it does if they spend it with a colleague or even their immediate supervisor. I've been in environments where companies have done this. And every single employee, when you sit with them at lunch, and I I spend a lot of time going to lunch with these folks trying to learn who I'm going to be working with over the next few years on strategic planning and execution. And in companies that do this, every single person remembers the first day they spent with the boss. It's one of the most memorable points in the company. And I've even heard people say things like, it's the reason I'm still here today. It showed me how important they thought I was that the boss would spend his entire day with me. And it was obviously that he made changes to his schedule to do that. So I'm a big a big fan of that. I know a lot of not every company's going to sign up for that. There are some extreme examples where the employee spends the entire first week with the boss, especially if that's a leadership position where the boss is going to be the direct report. And they literally shadow the person for an entire week. Um, in some cases, they'll spend the first day with the CEO or owner of the company, and then they'll spend the remainder of the week with another member of the leadership team that's in their kind of chain of reporting. But don't wait until the employee's first day or three days before their first day to think about this. This needs to be the same way you're going to start putting together interview guides, the same way you're going to start building um, job scorecards the same way you're going to to bring more rigor to your processes around asking for resumes and how do we collect those and those kinds of things. You need to sit down as a team and think about your orientation process and what do we want to communicate. We w- we want to communicate passion. Who's the best person to do that? Or the CEO? We want to we want to communicate pace. What's the best way to do that? a detailed itinerary with no gaps so that everybody knows what's happening for the first eight hours that this person's on premises. The other thing that that I think after the orientation's done is you need a personal development plan for A players. And this is really easier than you think because most A A players are going to do the work on their own. You just need to ask them to share it with you and tell them how you can best help them. Your job is to coach. You need to be offering feedback and providing some structured accountability. That's it. You don't need to micromanage their professional development plan. They'll tell you what they need. They'll tell you where they want to go. When you get an A player on board, it's night and day. You don't have to uh, work with them on a continuing education plan if they're in a professional services firm. If they're an attorney and they want to specialize in tort litigation – 
they won't have any problem putting together their continuing education credits to be all about uh, tort litigation. So what you really have to do, though, is provide some feedback because – and they'll, if they're an A player, they're going to recognize the wisdom and the need for feedback. And they're going to recognize the benefit of some structured accountability. So not just when are you going to do those continuing education hours, but what are you going to do after you get back? How are we going to make sure that this stuff is really um, becoming useful for you and it has some practical value? And they'll work with – they'll tell you, well, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I've got – you know, the firm did this case last year and they really screwed it up. I've heard people groaning about that. So I'm going to go get educated on the places that they screwed up and I'm going to come back and I'm going to write up a case that details what they could have done better and how we cannot repeat this mistake again. I mean, a, that's the kind of answer you'll get from an A player. But what you have to do is ask the question, how are you going to put this to practical use? Or how, how am I going to make sure that this has the, the um, end result that you want as your goal? So be willing to coach them. The job scorecard can become a really good management tool after they come on board because it's going to allow you to coach the the person because the responsibilities and measurables have already been identified and agreed to. If you've got a job scorecard, you should be sharing that with the person during the interview process so they see where this position fits in the company and what's required of it and what does success look like. And then that becomes a template for how you coach them and the professional development plan that you put in place. Um, you also are going to need some structured quarterly updates or reviews. I think four times, at least four times a year you need to be sitting down for an hour or two talking about their job performance and specific situations that are still fresh in their mind about where they did well and where they didn't, where they could improve. And again, they're going to drive a lot of it. They want it. They're A players. They're going to want that feedback and they're going to want that insight. So often the only thing that you really need to do is set a date and have the meeting and they're going to take care of the rest. Um, you know, that's the, the great thing about having A players is that they will do a lot of this post-hire work for you, but you have to put in the time and the energy to develop the systems before they get on board because they're not there to help you with it yet. You've got one opportunity to make a first impression, but before that, there's a lot of work that you have to go through to make sure you got the processes to weed through the vast number of candidates and opportunities out there to find the A players. And if you're willing to put in the work, if you're willing to build the systems around it, then it's a matter of time before you get from having 25% A players to 75% A players. And when you get to that level and you're paying market rates for, for the talent that you have on board, you're going to have an environment that will beat the heck out of any of your competitors. And it's really going to set the bar high for what people have to do in your market to match your performance. So... I'm a big fan of top grading. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. I'll also put links up to some of the specific tools that we mentioned. So I'd say go out and buy the book. If you've got an opening that you're trying to hire for in your company, this will be of immediate value to you. But if you, even if you don't have a position that you're trying to fill right now, consider making this approach part of the DNA of your company and go ahead and start looking. Identify where the biggest gaps in our performance and let's go ahead and start this process without the pressure to immediately make a change because that's when you're going to get the, the uh, patient mindset. That's when you're going to 
really see this process pay dividends when you don't have to have somebody the next day. So I hope that this has been useful for you, and uh, we will see you next week. I'm Joey Brannon on the Axiom Podcast.